Welcome to FX in Focus, where our mission is to celebrate the talent and ideas that contribute to the global B2B payments industry. Join us as we ask CorePay cross-border leadership pressing questions and capture their vision on a variety of topics. I'm your host, Rob Bensick, Regional Director with CorePay. My guests today are Carl Shimada and Peter Dragisevich, and you're listening to this week's episode, Aftershock. As markets shift, corporate treasurers and CFOs need to keep up, so there's plenty to unpack. Uh, we'd always love to hear your feedback and suggestions, so feel free to email us at po- podcast at corpay.com. Please note the opinions expressed in FX and Focus are those of the speakers and don't necessarily reflect the views of Corpay or Fleet Corps Incorporated. My first question is volatility has picked up recently, particularly in the bond markets as the impacts of the most abrupt tightening cycle in a generation continue to show up in real economy and markets. Are things likely to settle down or are the swings we have observed over the past few weeks a taste of things to come over Q2? Peter, I direct this question to you, but I'm pretty sure Carl's going to chime in afterwards. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, Yeah, it really is a very interesting time. Uh, I do expect to see further bouts of volatility across markets over Q2 and and into Q3. Uh, As Warren Buffett kind of famously said, only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. (laughs) And the global shift up in rates is that tide. So historically, uh, rate hiking cycles by the US Fed, uh, especially ones that move settings into restrictive territory. So that's when interest rates are above, you know, well above the neutral level as they are now. You know, have a long history of exposing the excesses that have built up in different parts of the system. So the recent flare up in the banks is probably just the, the first example of that. And then, you know, there's a lot of concerns coming through around commercial property uh, as well. So it would really be unrealistic to think that the most abrupt tightening cycle we've seen in several decades, which followed one of the most accommodative periods in history that propelled asset prices higher and encouraged a lot of risk taking, uh, wouldn't generate an extended period of, of market turbulence. So what's happening now is that we've entered the part of the business cycle where the aftershocks and the downside risks from the jump up in interest rates, which are aimed at slowing down growth and lowering inflation, are really starting to show up. Uh, And these are unfortunately the the casualties from the central bank war on inflation. So we'd expect to see more of those. And I do think that um, we are in a more difficult period for the global uh, economy and environment. You know, growth is going to slow further as interest rate rises, uh, constrain consumer spending and business investment, and unemployment will start to lift. Yet inflation will still be uncomfortably high um, for, for quite some time, I think. And importantly for markets, um, the reaction function of central banks has changed. So central banks continue to have a you know, laser-like focus on involvement on avoiding the inflation mistakes of the 1970s. And that means that the economic pain threshold is a lot higher than what people became used to after the GFC, when low inflation allowed them, allowed the central banks to kind of swoop in at the first sign of economic trouble and provide support. So I think the market's current thoughts that policy settings could quickly be eased you know, later this year, particularly in places like the US, is a bit misplaced. 
And this is all kind of a recipe for further market volatility um, over the next few months, I think. Brilliantly put. Uh, that's a key point right there. Uh, if central banks really are willing to inflict pain on financial markets uh, as they fight to bring down inflation in the real economy, uh, investors and traders and even market analysts could be dealing with a situation that they're really completely unprepared for, that they don't have a playbook for. Um, this is a very, very different dynamic than the one that uh, prevailed for really the, the last couple of decades. Um, and that is what we're seeing happen in reality. A lot of the turbulence that is currently roiling markets comes down to the tension between what investors think central banks will do uh, and what the central banks themselves are saying that they will do. Um, so, you know, so far markets have repeatedly gotten it wrong. Um, they're assuming, you know, all, I guess over and over that that tightening cycles are at an end um, and they keep betting that rate cuts are going to come sooner than later. Um, and, you know, that keeps sort of getting unwound as policymakers kind of keep wrong footing them by hiking more than expected and maintaining hawkish language. Um, and, you know, if Peter and I are right, uh, policymakers in the big economies might stick to their guns for longer than markets currently uh, expect. Um, and that might mean that asset prices are vulnerable, that interest rate differentials could shift quite dramatically and that currencies are likely to experience more volatility. Um, and that's really important to emphasize because realized volatility in currency markets has been relatively tamed through all of that turbulence in fixed income markets over the last three quarters. And so, you know, we think that this is going to change in the coming months as global fundamentals begin heading in different directions. So, you know, fixed income markets might stabilize a bit, but at the same time, we might see a lot more movement in currency markets. Uh, and, and that's something that we certainly all have to buckle our seatbelts for. With all this being said, how do you see this backdrop of slowing growth, rising recession risks, you know, combined with high inflation feeding through to the major currencies like the big dollar, the euro, et cetera, over the next couple of months? What are your thoughts on that? So the current market consensus suggests that the euro should outperform the dollar in the quarter ahead, um, you know, really as European policymakers keep hiking in contrast with their American counterparts who are expected to pause and then even begin setting the stage for rate cuts. Uh, traders uh, see the ECB hiking several more times before holding the line for a prolonged period, while the Fed is seen delivering at least uh, two cuts in the back half of the year. Uh, so the dollar is widely expected to soften on, on worsening rate differentials and a relative improvement in economies outside of the U.S. Now, you know, I think from our perspective, on the face of it, we do think that the, the case for euro strength is quite persuasive. Uh, the common currency hit undervalued levels during last year's war-related energy shock, and, and, you know, clearly some mean reversion would be well justified. Um, but we also think that the monetary divergence theme is a bit overplayed. Um, you know, U.S. In inflation could remain sticky, sticky for longer than expected, um, even as prices decelerate more quickly in Europe. Um, so, you know, that might help to bring interest rate differentials into closer alignment. Um, and at the same time, you know, we think that the dollar could remain a rock in the sea of troubles um, with energy independence, uh, strong consumer balance sheets and a world beating technology sector helping to insulate the U.S. against a global economic slowdown while also helping to sustain safe haven flows. 
you know, we think that the Federal Reserve will do what policymakers have said that they will do. They they might deliver one more hike and then hold rates right through into 2024. Um, so that's really going against that sort of, you know, current market consensus. Bottom line, uh, we do expect some modest dollar weakness, but we don't think it'll go as far as market participants seem to think here. Yeah, fair enough. And, and, and I agree with you. I think the Fed's definitely in line for one more hike. I think it's just people hoping that they'll slow down on the rate hikes. Um, Peter, what do you think about the Australian dollar in Asia? China's economy's reopened. Is that going to provide an offset to the unfolding step down in global growth? Yeah, well, you know, the world economy is facing a, a very tough outlook, but it isn't all one way. So China's shift away from COVID zero and its reopening is working in the opposite direction. Um, while it, it won't be a perfect offset, it should help you know, cushion some of the blow from high interest rates, particularly across parts of Asia. Um, but it could be very sector and industry specific. This is why China's kind of reawakening isn't as straightforward when it comes to the Aussie dollar as as some people kind of think. Um, you know, as as was the case in you know Western economies when they emerged from lockdowns, you know, spending on services, so things like travel, entertainment. Uh, should be the strongest part of, of China's economic recovery over the next year. Um, Australia and other parts of Asia, like Hong Kong, Thailand, Singapore, they typically get a benefit from outbound Chinese um, tourists. Um, so that's kind of a, a positive impulse. But for Australia, at the same time, you know, China's really been becoming more focused on its labour-intensive consumption growth and it's tilting away from doing the usual kind of commodity intensive infrastructure spending. You know, that, that was the key message from the 2023 kind of growth and policy targets they unveiled at the recent uh, National People's Congress. So more generally, you know, we think that the Aussie dollar is facing a bit of an uphill battle over the next few months, and that's on several fronts. And we do think that the Aussie dollar will continue to be a relative underperformer. So against currencies like the, the euro, the yen, uh, et cetera. So, you know, fundamentally, the impacts from the very fast and large global tightening cycle, as we said before, should continue to kind of manifest over the next quarter or two. And heightened volatility and, and slower global growth is typically hasn't historically been a, a great environment for for cyclical currencies like the Aussie. Uh, it tends to favour those you know non-cyclical currencies or less cyclical currencies like the US dollar, euro, uh, and the yen. And added to that, um, we do believe that the diverging policy trends and expectations should keep the Aussie dollar on the back foot as well. Um, you know, central banks like the Bank of England, the ECB. Uh, continue to flag that they've got more work to do. You know, as we've gone through, we think the Fed's got a little bit more to do and, and the, the pricing for rate cuts later this year is a little bit mispriced. And also in Japan, we, we think that the Bank of Japan's about to embark on its kind of policy normalization path. And you, you have to contrast that with the RBA. So earlier this week, you know, the RBA kind of paused its, its rate hiking cycle um, this comes after 10 straight meetings where they, they raise rates. Uh, it's the most aggressive RBA tightening cycle since the 1980s. And, and while the RBA has left the door a bit ajar to doing more, 
its forward guidance is has really been softened up uh, and and further moves are very conditional uh, on the data. It's really up to the data to justify you know, further moves. And on this basis, we kind of think that the bar for the RBA to actually do more is 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 quite high. You know, in contrast to many other central banks, you know, the RBA is openly kind of saying that it wants to try and 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 navigate and achieve a soft landing. It, it really wants to kind of preserve as many of the job gains that have been jobs that have been created over COVID as it can. Uh, it thinks it's it, you know it's a medium-term benefit for the economy to have uh, lower unemployment. So you know, in our perspective, you know, given that kind of bias from the RBA, the fact that inflation locally looks like it's turning down, and and with growth set to slow, we actually think the RBA is kind of at the end of its tightening cycle. Um, so you know, that policy or rate impulse on the Aussies is not going to be there um, anymore, and and the the outlook in, from other central banks kind of will will keep it on on the back foot on on a number of those crosses that I mentioned. So, Carl, moving back across the Pacific, economic data and particularly labor demand has so far been resilient this year in Canada. How do you think conditions will evolve in the coming months and how might that impact uh, the BOC's uh, current policy path? Yeah, Canada is an interesting story right now. I, I certainly didn't expect the economy to perform as well as it has in the last few months, and I don't know of anyone else who did either. Um, you know, employment remains strong. Housing markets are showing signs of stability. Um, you know, prices are actually up year over year. Uh, consumer consumption is rising. Business investment still looks relatively robust, and overall growth is running far faster than the Bank of Canada's projections. Um, and that sort of fed over uh, into markets. Uh, you know, if you look at consensus forecasts, they suggest that the Canadian dollar, uh, the loonie, um, you know, might climb another five cents or so by year end. Um, and, and so all of that is despite this sort of horrific level of indebtedness. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the Canadian private non-financial sectors uh, debt to GDP ratio is around 217%. So about a quarter higher than the US and well above levels that have historically preceded crises and other major economies. You know, if you go back to the 80s or uh, and, and look at Japan or, or you know, any of the other examples, um, Canada is well beyond all of those. And so, and it's also despite this huge jump in carrying costs. So, you know, as interest rates rose last year, Canadian households saw that saw their interest costs jump by 43% year over year. Um, and so, you know, it seems like this is all being offset um, by high levels of fiscal spending. So, you know, spending flowing into more government hiring, into infrastructure spending, program enhancements, uh, and and things like that. Um, and at the same time, you know, you have sustained income gains that are helping to offset, you know, borrowing costs. Um, and of course, you have external demand that's really roaring, um, you know, with the U.S. consumers spending like there's no tomorrow, essentially. Um, and so, you know, when we take all of that in sum, the Bank of Canada is quite likely to respond to all of this by maintaining a relatively hawkish bias in its communications. Um, you know, they're they're likely to keep another rate hike on the table at least for a couple of months yet. Um, I, I don't necessarily think we're going to see another hike, but but uh, they are going to retain the option to to execute one. Um, 
and you know and, and i guess if i if i look back at the at the big picture here the iron rule of economics is always if something's too good to be true it probably is um you know we think that the canadian growth story will begin to turn negative in coming months um as global markets turn more skeptical as the news narrative becomes more downbeat um we think that the housing market's downturn should resume as households realize that the Bank of Canada won't cut rates all that deeply, if at all, um, and nor you know would would potentially the U.S. Um, and we also think that employment and business investment are likely to suffer. So the weird thing here is, in, in an almost eerie echo of our forecast from the first quarter, we think that a burst of optimism now will help the loonie gain a couple of cents, but that this will be really largely reversed by the end of June with further downside coming into the autumn months. Yeah, completely agreed. And, and I mean, I think we're starting to see a, a, a little piece of that already in the news and that um, uh, traders are starting to bet against one of the Canadian big banks. Back over to Japan and Peter. Peter, a new governor is taking charge of the Bank of Japan in early April. How do you think the BOJ policy will evolve from here? And, and what are the implications going to be for the, for the JPY and broader markets? Yeah, um, you know, things are becoming very interesting for, for the yen. You know, at the start of the year, we kind of flagged developments in Japan as something that needed to be watched closely um, this year. And we remain of that view. You know, people often forget how important a player in global capital flows and markets, Japan can be. You know, its size is 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 too big to ignore. And the changes set to come through should have wide-reaching kind of market consequences. You know, we, we, we're quite bullish on the yen over both the short and the medium term. You know, we're projecting dollar yen to kind of fall back down towards the low 120s uh, by the end of this year and for the yen to actually do well on a lot of the crosses. So our kind of positive yen bias, you know, reflects a number of factors. So the policy impulse is expected to change. You know, after years of providing wave after wave of stimulus to try and weaken the yen, boost growth and lift inflation, uh, BOJ policy finally looks set to move in the opposite direction now. Uh, it seems a matter of when, not if, you know, meaningful changes are, are made. Um, the BOJ's ultra-accommodative stance looks increasingly untenable, given, you know, a number of functionality constraints in the various markets that it, it participates in, and also fundamentally because um, Japanese inflation and wage dynamics have actually shifted higher after many, many years of very weak outcomes. So a change to their yield curve control or negative interest rate kind of regime could come about as soon as the late April meeting, uh, which is the first for the new for new Governor Ueda um, when he's at the helm. You know, from a capital flow perspective as well, uh, this could be quite impactful. You know, higher Japanese yields combined with rising FX hedging costs uh, could discourage Japanese investors from investing in offshore kind of markets. So less capital outflows from Japan are actually quite positive for the yen. And similarly, you know, Japan's trade and balance of payments positions, uh, which were historically have been sources of yen strength, have actually started to turn around. So in 2022, 
Uh, one of the big drivers of why the yen was so weak was that we had a big spike in energy prices and it saw Japan's kind of trade balance swing to a very large and unusual deficit. Likewise, there was a big deterioration in Japan's terms of trade. And these both kind of were drags on the yen. But now these forces have actually started to reverse course. So, you know, it should be a, a net positive uh, for the yen. And then finally, you know, as we've been talking about, the risk and, and global growth backdrop uh, should remain pretty shaky and negative um, over the next few months, kind of in our view. And typically that's kind of yen supportive as well. So, you know, while China's reopening should help cushion the blow, global growth, you know, recession risks across many uh, economies are going to remain in place for a while. Um, and given the aggressive tightening in monetary conditions, uh, a step down in global growth is clearly in the pipeline. It's a matter of how big it is, not, not will it happen. And if inflation at the same time remains stickier, uh, there could clearly be more bouts of market turbulence um, over Q2 and Q3. And, and you know, typically in, in, a, in periods of heightened volatility, you know, the yen is kind of the safe haven that, that people kind of you know, clamor towards. So I guess my last question is going to be for both of you. The world economy, it's going through quite an adjustment, obviously. Uh, battle against inflation, it continues to rage. Uh, but as we all know, markets can often end up surprising when everybody's thinking the same thing. What, what could be some of these potential surprises that catch markets off guard over the coming months? Right. So off the hop, uh, <laughs> I would uh, go off on a tangent and say that the uh, the broad application of, of generative AI technologies is already developing into the, the biggest, most profoundly impactful uh, economic story of our times. But, you know, so far, markets don't seem to process the implications and, and we're really not likely to see a eureka moment in this quarter. Um, you know, instead, uh, in, in line with some of our earlier comments, it's likely that we'll see more black swans um, that aren't black swans. Uh, and, and by that, I mean that, you know, we could expect more fragility and problems in financial systems and in real economies uh, as the sort of lagged impact of, of a historic pricing cycle hits home. It's impossible to predict you know, precisely where things will break, but we do think that things will break. Um, beyond that, I also think that markets are, are broadly unprepared for the degree of monetary policy differentiation that we're about to see. Um, central banks that were tightening in relative unison until a few months ago are now heading in very different directions as they respond to unique uh, domestic economic outcomes. Um, and as they deal with vast differences uh, in balance sheets at the household and corporate levels, um, you know, and, and after sort of that post 2008 deleveraging effort, the U.S. remains a relative global outlier, um, while other economies are still, you know, very much more likely to feel the pain from tightening financial conditions. Um, and, you know, they're going to feel that pain far more profoundly. Bottom line, uh, rate differentials could shift in highly unpredictable ways uh, and that you know is very likely to trigger renewed volatility in the currency markets uh, and i'll just add you know in terms of the way i'm kind of thinking about you know potential surprises um one kind of more vanilla macro one that comes to mind is actually kind of a double-edged sword for markets and it's if growth continues to surprise and remain more resilient than we and and most people kind of anticipate 
you know, it shouldn't be forgotten that a large pool of excess savings um, was accumulated in various countries over the past few years. You know, as all that policy support, you know, underpinned incomes and lockdowns kind of limited where we could actually spend uh, our money. So these large kind of aggregate buffers could continue to blunt the, the negative impact on consumer spending for, from higher interest rates, helping to kind of prop up GDP growth um, for longer than we kind of expect. You know, this in turn could actually feed through and keep unemployment lower uh, than otherwise would be the case. So whilst that's kind of positive on one side of the coin, uh, on the other, it, it actually means that inflation probably will stay higher for, for even longer, um, particularly as it's kind of could be occurring at a time when, you know, the big dis disinflationary force from, you know, lower energy prices has kind of run its course in the, in the, in the calculations. So, um, you know, as a result, central banks in this scenario could actually be compelled to push rates even higher and policy further into restrictive territory um, to, to ensure that inflation expectations don't shift up and we don't kind of develop that wage price spiral uh, that came through in the 1970s. And so given where you know, bond markets have recently shifted to factoring in the pivot or easing cycles by various central banks over the next year, you know, this kind of macro scenario that, that could trigger a sharp upward repricing once again in interest rate expectations uh, could actually be very disruptive for, for broader asset markets. So the bottom line is, you know, no matter how you cut it, it, it looks like we're going to see you know, a lot more volatility over the, over the months ahead. Yes, Peter saying, uh, be careful what you wish for. Folks, you've been listening to FX in Focus with today's guests, Carl Shimada and Peter Dragicevich. My name is Rob Bensick, and I'd like to thank you for tuning into today's episode. If you want to keep up with more news and views, make sure to subscribe wherever you're tuning in from. FX in Focus is a podcast written and produced by CorePay, a fleet core company. The opinions expressed in this program are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of CorePay or Fleet Corps. To submit questions or comments or to recommend a topic, please email us at podcast at corepay.com. And thanks for listening.